This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hello, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford, here with my illustrious co-host, Mark Sinell. Hello, Mark. Good, good morning, Carolyn. So today, like our guest, I mean, rock star, his background just blew me away. Um, Greg Crabb, founder of 108 Cyber and strategic advisor to several organizations, um, but that's just like, that doesn't even scratch the tip of the iceberg of who our guest is today. So first, welcome, Greg. Thank you, Carolyn. I enjoyed uh, enjoy the opportunity to chat. Well, we're Good looking morning. forward to it. Yeah. Um, so Greg, you recently retired after 20 years with the U.S. Postal Service, um, where you wore many hats, including projects coordinator for international fraud, assistant director of economic crimes, and ended your career as the chief information security officer and vice president of USPS. So like I said, that's that's the very tip of the iceberg of your career. And I just want to like kick it over to you and have you tell us your story. Thanks, Carolyn, and look forward to the opportunity here. So Really, the mission of my life has been to protect others and drive benefits for society. And uh, I was grateful enough to have the opportunity to retire last year after 30 years of federal service. Uh, When I joined the Postal Service in the mid-90s, I spent the first several years of my career being an auditor. And I was responsible for the old electronic data processing controls portion of it of the financial audit. There I learned an amazing amount of information about how computers work and mainframes and networking and and all that sort of thing. And in 2000, I transitioned to spend seven years investigating the origins of Eastern European organized cybercrime. And uh, that was an amazing experience where I got the opportunity to really attack an uh, an organized crime group that was based out of Ukraine and had splinters all over the world, working with Europol and Interpol, the Secret Service, the FBI, and many, many other organizations in between. In about 2005, I moved to Washington to take on bigger and better things. And in 2010, the international supply chain was attacked with some parcel bombs uh, from AQAP. AQAP put PETN, it's the liquid explosive that we all know as why we can't carry water bottles onto airplanes, Mm -hmm. but it completely changed the security model of how international supply chains work for moving parcels. And I spent a number of years working with an international community of 190 countries to develop new standards, working with civil aviation authorities to properly secure the supply chain from a commercial aviation perspective for, uh, for parcel security. 
And then in 2014, I got tapped to respond to a, a pretty significant breach at the U.S. Postal Service. And in that moment, I transitioned from being the law enforcement officer who was the hunter to the uh, chief information security officer who was the hunted and uh, responsible for an amazing network. And I, I was grateful to provide security for 160 million delivery points and you know private communications and parcels for for all of America uh, for six years and. You know, and you know, as we talked before the show, you know, I was really uh, grateful to have the opportunity to help protect the 2020 election, uh, which was just an amazing collaboration with the folks at CISA and, and many other organizations across the country in order to be able to, to pull that off. Can you talk about what you did to prepare for that? I mean, talk about pressure. Well, you, where do I start? I'm <laughs> well, you'd been preparing for 20 years, right? I, I had been preparing and I would not have been able to be as successful in the protection of the tech, protecting the technology assets the Postal Service relied on to move 70 million ballots if I had not had those experiences in dealing with Eastern European organized cybercrime. And understanding what it takes in order to be able to protect a network from everything from disinformation campaigns to all of the technical details that are necessary to secure a network. And where do you want to start? Uh, from, from an application security perspective for the organization, from an OT security perspective, yeah. all of the technology that was necessary in order to be able to move the ballots were, you know, in the, in the consideration. It's interesting because when I think of the U.S. Postal Service, I'm not going to lie, like, it's a little boring. You think of physical security. Yeah. OT. You, yeah. I mean, it's a letter and you're moving a physical thing, but like all the, the cyber that was involved in it, is it the processes that you were securing, the, the databases? It was everything. So it, from the delivery scanner that the, deli- uh, the, the letter carrier that is driving by your house every day, securing mm-hmm. that scanner to know that your ballot was in the mail mm-hmm. to all of the operational technology that exists. Now, the, imagine big warehouses larger than, you know, big football stadiums where mail processing is made, huge pieces of equipment where, you know, down to your address, you know, all this, all the packages come in and we sort them down to, to each delivery point. Uh, so in total, I was responsible for the protection of 1.2 million technology assets, petabytes and petabytes of data relative to package tracking and, and those kinds of things. Only 630,000 employees that are necessary in order to be able to deliver that mission and interact with all those technologies. That's just, that's just at the federal level, right? I mean, you're, I can only imagine the, the collaboration across states and everything must have been massive. Absolutely. And I did not have the, the, the responsibility of dealing with each of the states um, and the Postal Service, in order to be able to secure the election, is a massive enterprise focused on all of the collaboration 
developing standards on how mail pieces are supposed to be mm-hmm. uh, formed. And, you know, there's a lot to, to making sure that everything gets delivered on time. And, you know, if the balance aren't there, they don't get counted. Right. And that, that was something that not only my role as, as chief information security officer, but my security partner, who was the chief postal inspector, was out in every all over the country in facilities, basically making sure that each of the the communities were getting their ballots in a timely ma- manner from all of our delivery operations. Greg, you you um, I know you've done a lot of work with cybercrime, and you've worked with adversaries, I guess, as well. I, I mean, I, I am curious to know how you've seen this whole landscape transform over the years. Yeah, very interesting question, Mark. And I, I started working organized cybercrime investigations in 2000. Uh, I was asked to help the FBI with a case coming out or some uh, fraud, significant amount of fraud against eBay coming out of Ukraine. And it took me a, a several years to wrap my arms around it. And I was ultimately able to arrest a number of folks from, um, from Ukraine and other Eastern European countries that were involved in this. But really, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with a lot of investigators from uh, Eastern European countries. We had a conference in Warsaw number of years ago, and, and this was early days. And they really talked about how they started to see car smuggling gangs uh, that were based in Eastern Europe starting to have technology equipment in the vehicles where they were getting arrested. So uh, Eastern European car smuggling gangs would you know, basically get caught in Poland with stolen cars they popped the trunks and there would be a bunch of technology equipment, uh, credit card skimmers and uh, other technology that's necessary in order to be able to commit those types of crimes. And there was a conference, you know, good guys get together and, and do the International Association of, of Chiefs of Police Conference and those types of things. But in 2001, there was a conference in Odessa where a bunch of criminals got together. They referred to it as the (laughs) first international Carter's conference. And the members of that meeting became my targets. And how did you find out about it? uh, I was, I had uh, the good fortune of one of the criminals that I was investigating had hacked into a server in San Jose, California. At the time, I was based in Northern California. The, the, the data center was on my drive into the office, and he had he was sending all of his communications through that server. And so I intercepted 40,000 of his email messages. How did you find that? Long story. <laughs> okay. Long story, Carolyn. Fair enough. Um, it was just tracing IP addresses and getting back to the source of where all of his communications were coming from. And they all sourced to this particular server. The company was called Hurricane Electric in Fremont, California. And 
I worked with the, the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and the victim to get approval to go in and review my suspect's messages on a daily basis. So I had this unbelievable wiretap on this criminal and all of his email messages, not only facilitating his crime, but with all of his cohorts in crime who were were doing these activities. And one thing led to another and learned about this International Carters Conference based in Odessa and basically focused on this group. And that led me to the opportunity, Mark, to really work with Eastern European law enforcement officers. I I had occasion to work with the Russian FSB and the Ukrainian MVD and even law enforcement officers in Belarus. Uh, I I proudly uh, display the hat there from, from my colleague in Minsk, Belarus. Unfortunately, he was actually arrested for working with me uh, we went in country uh, in 05 and uh, he, we recovered a, a computer, uh, uh, the suspect uh, had a website, the, the banner on the website said that they, the, their objective was to take the United States back to the time of 1929. And fortunately, the, the Belarusian law enforcement officers were, were willing to work with us until the the government got involved after we left. And from the computer equipment in that case in Minsk, we recovered over uh, 55,000 full infos. These are victims in the United States where they've got their mother's maiden name, their social security number, all of the questions that are, all of the answers to the questions that are necessary for those uh, knowledge-based questions. He had hacked into LexisNexis, and his hack was actually the subject of a congressional debate. And the subject's name was Sergei Pavlovich. You know, it was uh, it was just interesting to be able to work with all of those folks and deal with not only on a personal relationship the police officers, but then the governor governments from a um, you know not so friendly perspective and. I was never invited back to Belarus again. Um, I had tried. I was stupid enough to try to go back to Belarus, but I think the U.S. Embassy was smart enough not to let me in. Um, but that um, those experiences were foundational for me to understand what's what's necessary in order to be able to counter what we see from a law enforcement perspective. And you know, like James Woolsey taught me. There's little difference between a Russian businessman, a Russian politician, and a Russian organized crime figure. They're one in the same. And the the person, uh, the, the people that organized that International Carters Conference in Odessa were actually in, you know, I look at, at where we are at in the, the political world today with, with Ukraine and Russia and the United States. And... I started going to Kiev in November of 2003, trying to get the guy's name was Dmitry Golubov. Dmitry Golubov arrested. Uh, he was one of the key organizers of this conference, responsible for massive amounts of, of fraud against financial institutions and uh, online companies. And it was very difficult. He was protected by the police in 
Odessa. They were on the payroll. And it really came down to the Orange Revolution in uh, early 2005, late 2004, 2005. There was a highly contested election in uh, Ukraine. The first election was called by the international community to be fraud. And a second election was made. And it was very close from a decision perspective. You might remember that the candidate that won was actually poisoned by the Russian FSB in in Switzerland while he was Mm -hmm. traveling there. Yes. And he, he won. Uh, when he took power, uh, the uh, Ukrainian MVD asked for me to to come over and actually present my case. And so I got an opportunity to go over and uh, brief my case to the Minister of Interior to Ukraine. And two weeks later, they arrested Dmitry Golubov. In, in London, and, right? In no, he, no, it was in Ukraine. It was in Odessa. Oh, okay. And he... You know, I, I, I do stop for a second. The, the Orange Revolution was extremely important in Ukraine because it was really that turning point in the history of Ukraine where they went Western leaning. They, they were looking to democracy. They were looking to how can they become more Westernized. And the, the U.S. Embassy at the time, when they asked, when the Ukrainians asked me to come over, the U.S. Embassy was giddy. You know, we actually have a government that's interested in working with the U.S. And I remember going with uh, the special agent that was the FBI legat there in uh, Kiev, Ukraine. His name was John Bowles. We drove over to the briefing with the Minister of Interior to Ukraine, and he was like so excited that we were going to present this case. And then for them to actually... Uh, the Ukrainians to go and arrest Glubov was unbelievable. And unfortunately, well, I was invited back over after the arrest to again do something that had never been done before. And Bowles was really excited. I was the first U.S. law enforcement officer to ever be asked to interview a Ukrainian on Ukrainian soil. And albeit you know, we went to the the jail. He told us to buzz off, but you know, so be it. It was it was a great turning point in our relations. And now, you know, we see what's going on in you know the the international community. You know, I can only pray for the the folks in in Ukraine to to be able to maintain their democracy and keep the the coalition here of the West to be able to help them. Right. I mean, given all of the things that. Are mm-hmm. topical in the news right now. It's this is really interesting because I mean, UK, Ukraine is in the news every day. So, yeah. totally agree, Mark. And you know, I unfortunately um, we weren't able to present our case in Ukrainian court against Golubov, and I won't say it was corruption, but you know, he was after you know, some time he, the case was dismissed. And several years later, uh, Dmitry Glubov actually became a member of Ukrainian parliament. And, you know, you just, that's the way the world works, people. The James Wilsey quote holds true. <laughs> exactly. You know, you Greg, know I, I saw it firsthand. I've seen it again and again in my interactions 
with folks that, you know, over in Eastern Europe on an individual level, I was able to forge some amazing personal relationships with law enforcement officers Mm -hmm. and they want to do the right thing. But governments, politics, corruption Mm -hmm. are difficult things to overcome, right? And, you know, I think that's where we really need to, to continue to focus and understand. So thank you for take, letting me take a little uh, walk down history lane. And, uh, you know, I, I think all of those lessons are important today to understand what we face from an organizational national security perspective for the country. So when I think of cybercrime, cybersecurity, I think of technology bits and bytes. I think of leveraging, you know, cutting edge kind of technologies and the, the way people do what they do. I'm really curious to know, because you've talked about a couple of things, which makes me think really kind of just, you know, grassroots, you know, Intel, spy versus spy. I mean, how much, how much of this, of this world is human or human Intel as opposed to the, the technology piece? Technology is just an instrument to the the motives of of the actors and i think that uh one, one of the things that you know as we look forward and we look at the attacks like solar winds and you know mm-hmm. you name the eastern european based attacks that we've we've seen they're all motivated by the objectives of either greed or control or you know, I, I often recall, and, and this is this is a supply chain story. It's going to start a little weird. One of my colleagues in Eastern Europe always used to say, "Mr. Gregory Krabs, trust no one, not your wife, not your girlfriend, and not your lover." And how could that possibly be a supply chain related story or, or, or quote? And I knew all three of his, by the way, <laughs> and wife, wonderful mother of his children, awesome girlfriend was just beautiful, and you know his his lover, she was smoking hot, but um, <laughs> but what he would always talk about is that from a mass surveillance society. You need to understand your relations and you need to understand your most trusted, intimate relations in order to keep them controlled. And, you know, I I think when we see the types of attacks with solar winds and the other supply chain attacks that we're seeing in, in software development lifecycle, I think we need to understand that. Mass surveillance is uh, a technique that is used in those cultures, and we need to understand and account for it in our information security practices. Uh, You know, I'm there was there's bits of the story that I've left out there, but uh, you know, you you can get the the main point right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're talking to Jason Bourne. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. So um, you've said a lot of things that take me back to kind of my roots, which is insider threat. And I'm wondering how concerned 
you have been or focused on the insider threat. It sounds like the way you even penetrated that original um, black hat group was through an insider threat. So how much are you leveraging that model in what you do? So when when you've got an organization of 600,000 employees, like I had, insider threat is something that you have to understand. And that's really where I hailed from was ensuring the integrity of the postal system really depends on making sure that every employee that delivers the mail to your address isn't going to disrupt or steal any of your private communications or your packages or or what have you. And so, you know, that was one of the lessons that I learned early on in really my investigative days with the Postal Inspection Service was uh, my first case that I supported. It wasn't my case, but I ended up te- having to testify for uh, on a, for a number of years was the arrest of a of a uh, airline handler. Uh, he was stealing packages as they were coming off the the plane at San Francisco International Airport. Just and random packages, hoping he'd get something good. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and so you know that's that's the way the world was, and you know I participated in that arrest and understood that. You know, the motives of the motives of individuals, you know, kind of drive what we need to do in order to be able to protect the integrity of communications and, you know, all of the infrastructure. But you know, t- taking that forward, you know, attacking organized crime and understanding that you need to get back to the source of communications, the source of financial transactions, all of those things from a supply chain perspective are critically important. Um, you know, having the opportunity to work with Interpol and uh, Europol in order to be able to scale and support the investigation of, of these kinds of cases is very important. And, you know, I think that's something that I learned a lot was, you know, I know you're, you know, Carolyn and Mark, you like to talk about innovation. Mm-hmm. And I have a very simple innovation framework that I like to apply. And it went for my law enforcement work. It went for my security and protection work. And I think readers or listeners should really think about these four basic components of innovation. It's you've got to compete. Every organization, like Peter Drucker says, all of business is, is innovation and, and marketing. And I work for a big company. You've got to compete. And for me, my law enforcement days, I was competing with uh, criminals. For my CISO days, I was con- competing with nation state actors. You are in a constant competition. You've got to collaborate. You've got to identify those individuals and organizations that can help you the most. And I had some great colleagues from uh, the time of working with Chris Krebs and CISA and and Matt Hartman to protect the election to working with uh, the FBI and the Russian FSB. You know, that that was a relationship that was very difficult to manage, my relationship with the Russian FSB. But I also count it for 
some of the most success that I had in my investigative journey. You've got to control. As an information security professional, controlling your processes and systems. As a law enforcement officer, controlling the communications and the financial transactions of your adversary are extremely important. And you've got to create. And you know, that's something that the Postal Service is constantly doing. You know, I think, you know, I applaud the Postal Service for what they're doing right now to help with the COVID kits. You know, they create constantly in order to be able to support this supply chain, to be able to support a, a little company like Amazon and grow it into it and, and support its growth into a big behemoth, you know, is, is all about creating. And, you know, even as a law enforcement officer, you have to be extremely innovative. And where I really excelled from a creation perspective was my ability to take massive amounts of information and apply data analysis techniques. And when I was doing it 20 years ago, it wasn't known as machine learning and artificial intelligence, but some of those same principles that we apply today in the area of machine learning, I was applying to the data that I was looking at in order to be able to attack the organized crime group that I was looking like at. Like with your so, brain? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I honestly, we could talk to you all day and I don't want to run out of time before we get the chance to ask you about retirement. I mean, your service to our country has been long and deep and intense and how did you come to the conclusion to move to the ne- to this next phase with um, 10-8? Thank you, Carolyn. I am excited to be able to help more organizations. As the Chief Information Security Officer of the Postal Service, I was at the hub of helping to secure a huge ecosystem of small and medium-sized companies that were trying to bring their goodness to the world in the form of packages and communications. And invariably, they didn't have the controls that they need in order to be able to secure their their infrastructure. And uh, I really hit this, um, I was sitting at my desk one day in San Francisco, and this was years and years ago, 2004, I received a call from a friend in Cyprus. And he said, Greg, I have something to show you. I'll email you right now. I need you to come to Cyprus immediately. And he emails me these documents. And it's there's there's a diagram, a Visio flowchart, and the routing table for credit card transactions for a major hotel chain. And I drop what I'm doing. I walk into the head of the office for the, for the Postal Inspection Service in, in San Francisco, and I say, my friend needs me in Cyprus. I hit the next plane, and we were on the ground examining the computer equipment from a arrest that had been made there. And the individual had, the, had been working with another subject in, in Germany. But we were able to recover all of the detailed schema of how this group had hacked into this major hotel corporation's credit card processor. It wasn't the hotel corporation itself. It was actually their merchant processor. These were pre-PCI days. The way it always happens, right? It's the HVAC company. It's supply chain (laughs) attacks. 
That's right. Yeah. Trust no one. <laughs> right? Your most intimate relationships. And I also recovered some really disturbing communications about a hack into a defense contractor. And I recovered the CAD drawings of a U.S. Navy ship. Mm. And then I knew that I needed to do more than just protect what I could. And so government service was unbelievable, outstanding experience, uh, just grateful for the opportunity to protect the private communications and packages for 160 million Americans every day. But I have more to give to be able to help small, medium-sized companies and you know, even my friends in large companies protect their infrastructure. And we are in a competition that we are not winning the game against. And there's a lot more that we need to do in order to be able to prevail. And hopefully through this effort of 10-8, uh, which 10-8 is the call sign for a law enforcement officer to go in service. Everyone's familiar with 10-4. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so 10-8 says, I'm on the radio, I'm here to respond and to help organizations that really need to level up their game when it comes to information security. I love that. So do you go into the organization and do an assessment of what they've got, show them the gaps? And I, I think I read, Mark, you and I were talking about this, that you even help with remediation if they Absolutely. have been attacked. So what does that look like? Absolutely. And so I had the uh, unbelievable experience and it's an unfortunate experience, but unbelievable uh, lessons leading the Postal Service uh, through the response to a mass data compromise of all of our employee data and dealing with all of the forensics and impacts of that particular activity were extremely uh, valuable to me. So that's just one example. Obviously, I helped, you know, so many other companies in there, you know, as an investigator, helping them to understand what had happened to them. But looking at it from not only an incident response perspective, recover the evidence, but from a technical response, how do you remediate the infrastructure and expel the adversary mm-hmm. to all of the consequences of uh, the, the business impacts to customers and to the employees, to you know, legal liability that the organizations have. So really that experience in 2014 where I transitioned from being an investigator to a, to the chief information security officer really helped me understand not only the investigative side, but also the business side of helping an organization that's in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, we're going to jump to our tech talk. So these last few questions are just meant to be easy, fun, <laughs> um, kind of quick responses. And I'm always looking for something new to read. I want to know what you're reading, not just for work, not just to find the bad guys, but what you read for fun. Like how do you, or, or listen to or watch. So I, I, I love sports. And so I'm, I 
this was the last weekend was the best weekend ever in NFL football <laughs> with every play, every game coming down to the last play. Everybody has got to just respect what happened. And, you know, from my perspective, that is, is one thing that drives me, but really in the area of tech, one of the things that's really that I'm passionate about it, and understanding is how do we engage a remote first economy? And, you know, how do we engage the hearts and minds and really looking, I've been looking at the work of like Jen Lim and who's the CEO of Delivering Happiness and the psychologist, uh, Adam Grant, to really understand how do we engage our workforces to be able to meet mission objectives and maintain culture? I think Mm -hmm. that's something that um, a lot of organizations need to understand and I think it's going to be very important, not only for security purposes, but for, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. other uh, mission of critical functions. All right, Mark, you got the next question. Okay, Greg, um, what do you think the next big leap in tech is going to be? So I would have to say it's going to be in the area of AI and ML, Com- getting commoditized for everyday use by consumers and businesses. And I think we'll see how that fuels a huge push for uh, computer vision and uh, uh, automation, uh, mechanical automation. So we'll see uh, a big push from robotics that's fueled by that. Mm-hmm. And then I see that ultimately becoming entire physical supply chains being automated. Yeah. All right. If you could wave your technology magic wand and bring into existence any kind of technology that you you wanted, what would it be? Wow. That's a tough one, Carolyn. I know. So but go uh, big. Go big, Greg. Holy cow. <laughs> so um if I could wave my magic technology wand, how do I how do I create the processor that uh, provides good over evil and uh, really installs trust in in computing? Okay, I would have gone for teleportation so I could just pop myself into Cyprus, but <laughs> you. Yours is much more altruistic. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, Greg. It's a conscience to Cyberdyne <laughs> systems. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really great way to spend an hour. Thank you, Carolyn and Mark. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's been really enlightening. Nice to meet you, Greg. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks to our listeners. Please share this episode smash that like button, give us a review, and um, we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.